you have your Bibles, join me in turning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. We are speaking specifically this morning to the subject of prayer. More broadly, our attention for the past several weeks and for the next few weeks has been on marriage and family issues and this series of sermons titled Devoted. It may seem ill-fitting that we'd have a sermon on prayer within a series of sermons on marriage and family issues. We have been dealing for the past several weeks with a, a number of sins that we have described as eroding the foundations of marriage and family. We've talked about things like busyness and anxiety. We've talked about unforgiveness and bitterness. We've talked about envy and we've talked about pride. But if I could just make a blanket prescription, regardless of how you would diagnose your particular issue or how you would diagnose your marriage and or family issue, just one remedy that would have a positive impact in every area of life, specifically marriage and family, regardless of your sin, it would be the discipline of prayer. Even the way we talk about prayer in our culture is, is a little disconcerting to me. I'm reluctant these days to even use the language of the power of prayer. Within the culture, this seems to suggest this energy, this self-will, this determination that we muster in a moment of quiet meditation from within ourselves. We gather to pray. Cultural perspective is that this is the joining of energetic forces, this collective self-will and determination that's going to somehow magically pull us out of this pit of despair. The reality is there is no power in prayer in and of itself. The power is in the God to whom we pray. And haven't you experienced that when you spend time with God in prayer, that, that power, that presence, the consecrating effect of time with God permeates every area of our life. I was in a football locker room this week and there was a big banner that said, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. It was a way of encouraging those boys that they find good friends, positive influences, that they surround themselves with people who are doing the right thing so that they themselves would choose to do the right thing. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. What prayer is, in essence, is getting around God, being near the Lord, sharing fellowship in the Holy Spirit, communing with His Son, Jesus Christ, spending time with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ, spending time with Him. And spending time with Him has a sanctifying, consecrating effect on every area of our life. You have experienced individually how a moment of prayer in the morning can radically transform the course of your day. Your outlook is different as a result of the time that you spend with God in prayer. Get up in the morning and you spend time with God in prayer and you'll not be inclined to commit an act of homicide when someone cuts you off in traffic. Everything is just different because of that communion with God, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. We might say this of the early part of our day. Spend time with God in the morning and that has a way of, of, of changing, of shifting things throughout the course of our day. 
There's a lot of marriage and family issues that could be resolved by a husband and a wife, a family, clasping hands together and bowing humbly before the God of heaven and asking that he would grant reconciliation, transformation of heart, renewed perspectives, heavenly perspective, radically changing the environment in which you find yourself at the moment. This is the focus of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 11. In fact, the disciples will ask a question that may be on the minds of some who are here this morning. How do I pray? And Jesus begins to instruct on this great discipline. Luke chapter 11, if you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. The Bible says here he was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us, and do not bring us into temptation. He also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, keep asking. And it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who searches finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. You may be seated. I can't tell you the number of times through the years that someone has asked me, how do I pray? Or preaching on the subject of prayer being approached especially by men after a message on prayer, who say, I really want to pray. I want to lead my marriage. I want to lead my family in prayer. I just don't know how. I'm in a workplace where people don't know Jesus, and I want to be a positive influence, and I want to lead my coworkers in prayer, but I just don't know how to pray. Maybe even in my life personally, I have a strong desire to pray. I hear what you're saying. I'm yes and amen, but I just don't know how to get started. I don't know what to do. In some ways, Jesus provides us with a framework for prayer in the first four verses of our passage. The Bible says in verse 1, he was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say. Now, from this point forward, I want us to establish an outline, a, a brief five-point outline for prayer. 
We find the five points in the very prayer that Jesus prescribes in our passage. It probably sounds very familiar to you because it is a somewhat abbreviated version of what is known as the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6. In the longer version of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, when you pray, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And don't bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You've heard this prayer before. Perhaps you've even recited this prayer before. Jesus' motive is different in Matthew 6 than in Luke chapter 11. In Matthew chapter 6, and by the way, these are two separate occasions, and there's a decent amount of time that separates the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 11. The motive in Matthew chapter 6 is to answer some of the cultural concerns with prayer. I mentioned some of our cultural concerns with prayer in the introduction, but there were issues that existed in the first century. Prayer had become this sort of customary thing. It, it had become something the Old Testament never intended it to be, and it had become something that was displeasing to God. Jesus gives us something of a window into the cultural situation he is addressing in the address itself. In Matthew 6 and verse 5, Jesus says, Whenever you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. On the one hand, prayer had become this intensely religious, hypocritical thing in the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. And in fact, he says, there are those who pray for no other reason than that they want to be seen by people as these overtly religious types. They want to be regarded by those around them as righteous. Do not pray like those people. I have always felt it's fairly obvious when someone prays publicly that does not pray privately. That's the kind of thing that Jesus is addressing in our passage. In some ways, the question that I'm often asked, how do I pray, is, is sort of thrust upon us by the misconceptions that, that exist with regards to prayer. I can remember being born again in our little country church and hearing men stand and pray in the King James language. Well, I had to look up thee and thou, and thy, what do these things mean? And I was always afraid of misusing them because of how unfamiliar to me they are. There's nothing sacred about thee, thy, or thou in your prayer life, right? That's not necessarily an inappropriate thing to use such language. Often I've found that it's reflective of a person's exposure to the King James. Maybe they're praying a passage and that's the language that they know that particular verse of Scripture in. But if the these and thous and thys are no, no more than religious phylacteries that you've attached in order to impress the public as to your ability to pray out loud, you are 
violating the spirit and the express command of Jesus that we pray not like the hypocrites who love to be heard. He goes on to say, I assure you, they have received their reward. In other words, they've been seen. But that is the only benefit whatsoever that could be produced by their prayers. In verse 6, he says, when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In other words, you, you pray to be heard by God and not your peers. I would just add here a note. The reason we have public prayer, what do we say? So-and-so is going to lead us in prayer. That's not a time of transition in the service. That's not an opportunity for you to find the pen that you dropped or to silence your cell phone or to smack your kid, right? It's a time that we would be led by the person who is praying. They are prompting us to pray ourselves where we are. We are being led in prayer collectively, going to God with our needs and concerns. This is not a prohibition against public prayer. It's a prohibition against hypocritical prayers that are prayed to be heard by people with no intent that God would listen in. In verse 7 of the same passage, Jesus addresses a second issue in the first century with regards to prayer. He says, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask them. You have various examples of this in the modern world, whether it be Far East idolatry or even Western world charismatic excesses, where there is this unintelligible babble with no earthly meaning and no heavenly significance. Your Father knows of your need. Don't pray like a hypocrite and don't pray like an idolater. Rather, Jesus says, pray in this manner. Now, the motive is a little different here, and we'll get to that in just a moment in Luke chapter 11. But for now, I want you to see the framework, the outline, the skeleton, if you will, that Jesus provides for us on which we can hang. Now, we can recite the Lord's Prayer, but what he's doing here is developing a skeleton that we can hang the meat, the flesh, the sinews, the muscles of our personal concerns upon. There's nothing necessarily wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer. A lot of you men grew up playing sports. You would huddle together before the game. You would recite the Lord's Prayer together. What I often observed is that the same mouths that recited the Lord's Prayer in the huddle said every cuss word in the English language once you cross the lines, and they would invent some to fill the gaps. If that is your approach to reciting the Lord's Prayer, you are violating the very teaching of Jesus in the passage we just read. There's nothing necessarily wrong with reciting the prayer. But the purpose of Jesus here is to provide for us a format for prayer or an outline for prayer that can be used in our personal prayer lives. He says, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. If you're writing this outline or following along in the outline, we begin our prayer time with praise. This is not just an opportunity for praise. This is an expression of, of, of reverence. Father, hallowed be thy name. Begin in, 
in prayer by celebrating who God is. It can be a remarkable confidence builder for us that we might pray in faith as we have occasion to share what our needs are. God, thank you that you are good and faithful and just and righteous and holy, that by your good providence, you have provided for our every need. God, thank you that in your absolute sovereignty, you know the very hairs of my head. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross, that his blood shed for me might cover for all my sins. Thank you, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead, that we might have the gift of everlasting life. God, thank you for who you are. We begin in, in praise. We begin celebrating who he is and what he's done for us. There are a few things that are triggered by this, right? A confidence that regardless of the nature of the petition we bring before God in the prayer which is to follow, he has the power and the heart to grant all our needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. There's a, a reverence for the fact that we come to a holy, holy, holy God in prayer in that moment as well. There, there is a, a, a certain liberty about the way we approach God in prayer. A liberty that you ought to be aware of if you've ever been concerned of coming somehow in an irreverent manner, or you've concerned yourself a little too much with the mechanics of prayer. Jesus is not so much interested here in hands that are clasped and eyes that are closed and heads that are bowed or bended knee, but the posture of our heart. I, I have never been able to get my head around this notion that we come to God as our bro, some dude or some guy. I hate all that. Makes my skin crawl when I hear it. He is not our bro. He is not some dude. He is not some guy. He is the holy God of heaven. But at the same time, there is a certain liberty we have in expressing ourselves to God. I have three sons. The father-son dynamic is a good illustration of how it is that we come to God in prayer. Jesus teaches us here, pray, Father, hallowed be thy name. My, my, there's a certain way that my sons can speak to me. And there are certain ways that my sons cannot speak to me. And if they cross that line, it won't take them long to find out. But at the same time, I want my sons to feel the freedom to come to their father, regardless of the nature of their issue. This is what it means to have liberty with the father. Liberty does not equate to irreverence. Liberty is the freedom to come to a God who loves us and cares for us, even in our sin, even in our despair, with the power and the heart to meet our every need through his son, Jesus Christ. We begin to pray by rehearsing the character and the attributes of a good and faithful God, stirring a sense of reverence in our heart and emboldening us in faith that God can deliver on the needs we bring before him. Jesus goes on to say, your kingdom come. This is expressed more fully in the Lord's Prayer we find in Matthew chapter six. He says there in verse 10 of that chapter, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
There may be more significance to the notion of your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven, than what we realize at first glance. There is an ongoing concern within the Israelite people in this window of history that what they do on earth is an accurate reflection of what is unfolding in heaven. You may not have realized this, but before there was Greek or Roman influence in Palestine, the people of Israel operated according to a solar or sun calendar. Once Greco-Roman influence entered in, they began to utilize in Israel the same calendar that we use today, which is a lunar or moon calendar. And that night calendar versus day calendar becomes the basis for this New Testament metaphor, we are sons of light, not sons of darkness. In Israel, the shorthand for saying we are faithful Jews Adherence of the old covenant was to say that we are sons of the day and not sons of the night as the Gentile or Greco-Roman people. It became a way of expressing this, this difference between those devoted to the old covenant and those who had succumbed to the influence of Greco-Roman culture. John picks this up especially in the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and consistently contrasts the light and the darkness. The problem with the calendar change is that the days of the week change. There's one less day in the calendar. And so everything shifts, right? If you are comparing a solar calendar and a lunar calendar, the days would not fall at the same place or the same time. Now here's the issue. In the mind of the Israelite, the Sabbath on earth was the Sabbath in heaven. So to change the calendar meant that now everything we do on earth is out of step with what is being performed in heaven. We are perpetually violating the Sabbath commands of the Old Testament because we're now operating on this night or lunar calendar. And so when Jesus says, our prayer is that your will be done on earth even as it is in heaven, it must resonate with people who are concerned to see that there be some consistency between the activities of heaven and our activities here on earth. What I'm pressing at here is the notion that there is real concern here on the part of the Savior that our lives in the here and now are an accurate reflection of the concerns and interests of the there and then. That what God desires for us be the genuine desires of our heart. This is a daring and dangerous way to pray. It is one thing to recite the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is another thing altogether that from a place of sincerity, we would ask of God, Lord, may your will be done in my life even as it is in heaven. This is a discomforting notion. And I suspect that for all of us, with no exceptions, we would be greatly discomforted if we were to be so bold and brazen as to pray that God's will and that God's will alone would be performed in our life. And I would challenge you this morning to find the courage and the conviction and the humility and the selflessness to pray from a place of sincerity that his will be done in your life even 
as it is in heaven. Categorically, for us, building this outline for prayer, this becomes occasion for us to pray for evangelistic and discipleship opportunities, to pray that God would save, to pray that God would grow in grace our friends, our peers, our family, our spouse, that God would grow us in grace. Recently, there was this quotable moment from a fairly popular Christian preacher that made its rounds in social media, and unlike the empty platitudes that usually make their rounds on social media, I found it to be incredibly convicting. He asked the question, if God showed up, Jesus showed up at your house today and promised to answer all of the prayers that you've prayed in the last week, how many people would be born again? How many people would be saved? How many people would be forgiven of their sins? Dear friend, salvation is not the result of our growing up. It's not the result of our wising up. It's not the influence of a pastor or persuasive power. It's not a gifted evangelist. The work of salvation is the work of the Lord. Only God can touch and turn the hearts of men. Doesn't it stand to reason that we would bombard heaven, that he would do this work that only he can do? Are you praying for the souls of your friends? Are you praying for the souls of your kids? Are you praying for the soul of your spouse? Are you pleading for your neighbors and your coworkers that God would save them from their sin? Your kingdom come means that hearts are changed. Kingdom come means that you are changed, that I am changed, that one heart at a time, the kingdom would indeed come. Your kingdom come means the world is changed as it's shaped by the power and influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ought to pray toward that end. Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Verse 3, Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. Sometimes we chide bringing our physical or material needs to the Lord. And in so much as that becomes the exclusive concern of our prayers, it ought to be chided. But who else are we to bring our concerns to if not to Jesus Christ who has the power to meet our needs richly by his grace. Give us this day our daily bread. When I read references like in the Bible, like this in the Bible, give us daily bread, it's convicting. We live in, in such affluence with such creature comforts. These blessings have become for us in so many ways curses. We presume upon God's provision while so many in the world are literally praying for daily bread, bread that can sustain their physical life for the duration of this day. Often rather than the creature comforts we enjoy serving as real blessings for us, they serve to anesthetize us against our desperate need for the provision of God, the faithful provision of God day by day in each of our lives. I don't care what your bottom line is or what your bank account says or what your net worth is, you and I need the daily provision of God's grace and mercy in each of our lives. We're prompted here to pray for the physical needs that inevitably arise in our life. Bring them before Jesus. In verse 4, he teaches us to pray and forgive us our sins 
for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. This is an opportunity for us to confess our sin as it's appropriate to confess our specific sin, the sins that plague us. Especially when secret sin is revealed to us. You know, there are times when we are convinced that we are right. And the Spirit says, like Nathan the prophet, you are the man. When that happens, we ought to confess those sins before God. And the Bible says that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. This is something of a lost art. Apology in general is something of a lost art in our culture. Most of the public apologies that you hear or have exposure to are far more influenced by some public relations form than the teaching of the New Testament. We come before God and we acknowledge that we have done wrong without rationalization, without any effort at justification, without consideration for the circumstances in which the sin itself was committed. We simply own the responsibility. We plead the blood of Jesus over our life and we ask the Father would forgive us of our sin. Father, forgive us. The idea of confessing sin is it's more than just a, a verbal or audible expression of having done wrong. It's about aligning our hearts with God. It's about acknowledging that we are wrong and God is right. God, forgive me of my sin. Jesus goes on to say here, not just forgive us our sins, but to express this idea that we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. He's assuming a lot, isn't he? We talked last week about bitterness and unforgiveness. I'll just give you a little help here. The, the, the aftermath of that sermon was exactly what I thought it would be, a week of conversations about what forgiveness looks like in a given scenario. Complex situations where forgiveness takes different shape and where bitterness has been an ongoing issue. It's always the case in the week after a sermon on forgiveness. We said last week, it sounds neat and clean, but it gets really messy when the, when the tentacles of forgiveness begins to make its way into your life. Here's some very helpful counsel. If there is someone that you have failed to forgive, that you are harboring hostility or business toward, if you will begin to pray for that person, it will change your outlook on the issue altogether. There's, there's sometimes for me, some y'all, I know a lot of y'all are more spiritual than I am. Sometimes, you ever just be mad and you know if you would pray, you would not be mad anymore, but you want to be mad for a minute so you don't pray yet? So same sort of dynamic with unforgiveness. If you will, you will not be bitter toward a person that you are praying for. You will either cease your bitterness or you will cease to pray. But you will not be prayerful for a person that you are harboring hostility toward. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who have sinned against us is the way Jesus expresses it. He goes on in the conclusion of the prayer to say, and do not bring us into temptation. This is where we pray for protection from temptation. This is part and parcel, by the way, of confessing our sin. It's not just an acknowledgement of the fact that we have done wrong. 
but a calling on the power of God's Holy Spirit that we might find the power to persevere through that temptation the next time it arises in our life. There are really two ways to, to deal with temptation. You can kill temptation in your life in one of two ways. The easiest way and the way that most people opt for is to just give in to it. If you just do whatever you're tempted to do, you won't be tempted to do it anymore, at least until the next time it becomes a temptation for you. And a, and a, lot, of, a lot of people, I'm convinced, will just give in to the temptation and then they will, they will delude themselves into believing that they have some victory on the backside of that because they're not tempted again with the same sin for a season. And then it just comes up again and you're back at the same crossroads. You'll either alleviate the temptation by giving in to that enticement or by opting for the second choice, which is to call upon the empowering presence of God's Holy Spirit to persevere through that temptation. Now, if your choice is to persevere through that temptation, temptation is going to throw everything it has against you. But on the other side of that experience is real victory, not the pseudo victory that comes in the aftermath of giving in or succumbing to the temptation, but real victory that is the fruit of the work of God's Holy Spirit. And the tendency is that that kind of victory has lasting impact in your life. Lead us not into temptation. God, help us walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Sanctify my life. Mold me and make me into the image and likeness of your only son. Fill my heart with righteous desires. Help me to walk faithfully in the power and presence of your Holy Spirit. Help me to be like Jesus. And so Jesus brings the framework to an end. But remember what the question was that began the passage. Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. Let me tell you what I think. I am pretty convinced that when they ask this question, the methodology or the framework or the outline for prayer was not their concern. This may be indicated by the fact that Jesus gives a more abbreviated version of the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't give the fuller expression of the model prayer that he offered in Matthew chapter 6. I'm inclined to think that they saw something in the outcomes of the prayers of John's disciples that compelled them to ask this question. Stuff is happening. We're praying the same basic prayer. John's disciples would have learned the model prayer just as Jesus' disciples learned the model prayer. But when John's disciples pray, it seems as though some stuff is moving around. God is active in their life when they begin to pray. What is the difference between the way John's disciples pray and the way we've been praying up until this juncture in our walk with you? So Jesus gives the framework, right? But he doesn't stop there. The force of our passage isn't in the first four verses. It's in the last two paragraphs. In verse 5, he also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he'll answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. 
at least a part of the force of Jesus' teaching here is that we would pray with persistence. In fact, the outline might go like this. How to pray, how to pray, and how to pray. How to pray is answered first in verses one through four. Here's an outline. How to pray is answered again here in verses five through 10. Pray with persistence. Pray persistently. Now, there is a level at which we can yes and amen the call of Jesus to pray with persistence. The first thing that comes to our mind, I guarantee you, is to pray with stamina, to pray with energy, to pray with consistency. And all of that is right. That is not necessarily wrong. You may be thinking in your mind of the tendency when you bow to pray, your mind drifts away, doesn't it? And we have to call our attention back to the things of God, bringing every thought captive to obedience to Christ. That is not a uniquely 21st century experience. This has been the case for all of human history. Our hearts and our minds are prone to wonder and prone to stray, especially prone to leave the God we love. We, we recognize that this is our plight, but this has always been the case. This is not just an iPhone and social media thing. This has always been the case. And so the call of Jesus is to be persistent in prayer, that we would not cease. I like to use the example of Jacob's wrestling with God. Remember that episode in the book of Genesis? God comes to Jacob, and there's a wrestling between God and, and Jacob. And Jacob holds fast to the angel of the Lord, and he says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the wrestling match is so fierce that Jacob walks with a limp for the rest of his life. But God eventually blesses Jacob. We ought to pray persistently in the spirit of Jacob. Say of God, I will not let you go until you bless me in this way. And hold on tight. We'll limp for the rest of our days if need be, but we must pray with persistence. But that is only one of the levels at which Jesus is speaking when he talks about this idea of praying in persistence. I love the fact that Jesus gets real world dynamics, right? Even in the passage, if you go to your friend and it's too late, he's gonna say, get out of here, I'm not fooling with you. I'm in bed, my kids are in bed. Now you can, you can knock on my door, when I'm in bed, I got zero issues. If you wake that four-year-old up, I will probably not greet you like Brother Wade, right? Jesus gets real-world dynamics. You can find the energy, you can find the stamina, you can find tricks and tactics that can help you fix your attention on God over extended periods of time. Let me tell you the kind of things that are most likely to create in you a spirit of, of defeatism, that are most likely to create in you quit when it comes to the business of prayer, especially with regards to marriage and family. Some old boy this morning gets all enthusiastic about prayer. I'm going to go home. I'm going to lead my wife in prayer. I'm going to lead my kids in prayer. We're going to do it at this time of the day. We're going to move mountains and we're going to reset the schedule in order to make this happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen. She's going to be ready to throw a dish at you just about the time you plan to pray. And those children are going to act like they have lost their blooming mind. We, we have had family devotions at the Stevens household on Christian love and unity that ended in physical altercations between our children. There is just a spiritual warfare dynamic 
that comes with the business of prayer. And that old boy's gonna walk in that room and there she's gonna sit mad, sold up, and then spoke to him in 30 minutes. And the kids are going nuts and he's gonna say, forget this, I am out. And he'll quit, he'll give it up. Or, or, there's some old girl that's here and she says, you know what, I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna be the sanctifying force in our family and I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna pull us all together and we're gonna pray and I don't care what happens. And he's gonna be sitting his lazy tail in that recliner with some goofy game on the television. And he's gonna act like he's committed, but he's not really, and you know him better than that. And then you're gonna be mad and storm off and you're gonna say, I quit. It's these real world scenarios that are likely to create defeat and quit in us far more than just the absence of energy, stamina, or a slot in our daily schedule. I know you've got to prioritize it. I'm not minimizing those kinds of things. I'm just telling you that if you think that just because you put it on the schedule and your motives are pure and your heart is right, that this is all going to go swimmingly, you have greatly misunderstood the nature of spiritual warfare. This is a blessed thing that we could commune with the God of heaven. Hell has a direct interest in the disruption of our fellowship with God and what it stands to create in our personal experience. And to that, Jesus is saying, don't give up. Don't get frustrated. Don't let the awkwardness deter you. Walk, walking in. Here's the thing for men, and for men especially, but I think there's probably a bit of this that's true for women as well. It's an easy thing to sit down with your friend at the coffee shop who didn't see you kick the cat or who didn't see you mistreat the kids and pray just like you love Jesus with all your heart and everything's good. But she knows you far better than that. And those kids saw you kick the cat. And who in the world do you think you are huddling this family together to hold hands and to pray? And into that kind of awkwardness that can create give up and quit and frustration, Jesus is saying, pray with persistence. Do you know what you ought to do when you don't want to pray? You ought to pray. And what you'll find is that God begins to turn the heart and, and, and that the resistance that you once sensed so powerfully it begins to turn as you meditate on the goodness and the deservedness, the worthiness of God to receive our praise and the privilege that it is to engage him in this level of communion. God begins to turn the heart and the volume begins to come down and the tone begins to change and the interactions begin to be peaceable. Everything is changed. You show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And God is pleased to work that little proverb out in short order when we come to him in prayer, consecrating every corner of our life. Ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you will find. There's a, a third principle I, I want us to see here just quickly. Go to verse 9. I say to you, keep asking, and it will be given to you. Keep searching, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. If you go down to verse 13, Jesus says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And God is pleased to give the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. What I, what I want you to focus on here is the certainty with which Jesus speaks when he says, ask 
and you'll receive. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who seeks finds and everyone who asks receives. And the door is open to everyone who knocks. This is one of those passages and we run across them with regards to prayer from time to time that, that people have taken and done violence to, that people have misrepresented for nefarious purposes. They've sought to make this into something that is focused on health and, and prosperity and nothing could be further from the truth. But we must not let that minimize the certainty with which Jesus speaks, nor the assurance with which we can pray when we come before God to ask, to seek, and to knock. There is an absolute assurance about what Jesus promises in our passage. This past week was the one-year anniversary of the adoption of our youngest son, Bo. I don't think there's ever been a thing in my life about which I have prayed more than we prayed in that three and a half years of pursuing his adoption. He has never slept well through the night. He still doesn't. He's four and a half years old. He's four foot tall and 60 pounds, and he still comes and gets in my bed in the middle of the night and wallows around like a hog rooting in my bed. But that has always been the case. And I I can't tell you the number of nights that I've come in to find him in his crib and him crying and pick him up and try to keep him in his room so you don't wind up with him in the bed for the rest of the night and just holding him and humming a prayer that God would be pleased that this child would bear our name and be with us forever. I'm sure there were selfish attachments. Our heart was set on that child from the very moment that he entered into our home. But selflessly, we wanted to see him brought up in the training and admonition of Jesus and provide for any need that might arise in his life. But true enough, God's will might have been different than that. And I trust that he would have turned our heart over the course of time to pray differently for, the out, for, for an outcome for him that was different than what we ultimately experienced securing his adoption a little more, a few days more than a year ago now. But oh, how we prayed. Oh, how we prayed. Oh, how we prayed. I pulled every lever. I called in every favor. I pushed every button. I harassed government officials from frontline child protective services workers to the lieutenant governor of the state of Mississippi. What officers at the highest levels of state government could not do my God was faithful to do. Keep asking and seeking, knocking, and the door, dear brothers, will be opened to you. I want you to realize that prayer is, this is an incredible privilege, right? We talked in the introduction about cultural misunderstanding of prayer. You do realize that the access we have to God in prayer is exclusive to those who have been bought by the blood of God's only son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no man comes to the Father except through me. 
Surely that's a salvific statement that speaks to the fact that we have access in salvation to the very God of heaven. But it's an inclusive statement as well. The only access, whether it be prayerful or salvation access that anyone can have to the Father, is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There are a couple of episodes in Matthew's telling of the gospel that I so wish he would elaborate on. Like he says, Jesus dies on the cross and dead people arise from the grave and they walk around the city. And I'm thinking, Matthew, tell me more. And then there's this passing reference where he says that as Jesus dies on the cross, that the veil in the temple that had separated the Holy of Holies, the place of the manifest presence of God from the outside world, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. He says it as though any numbskull would understand the import, the significance of this, but with so much cultural distance between ourselves and there, I fear that this is sometimes missed. It is not just that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that we might have the forgiveness of our sin and the hope of everlasting life. It is that Jesus died on the cross, shedding his atoning blood on our behalf, that we might have any access whatsoever to the God of heaven. Amen. When we pray in Jesus' name, this is not some liturgical way of bringing to an end our prayers. Some fancy Christian slogan that we tag on as an empty platitude to our prayer. We either pray in the authority of Jesus' name or we needn't pray at all. The access we enjoy is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because of what God has done, affording for our sin debt, the price of our redemption paid by the shedding of Christ's blood, access to the Father made by the shedding of Christ's blood, all of the access that we enjoy, the gifts and the mercies and the favor of God showered on our life, the result of what Christ has done for us at Calvary's cross. Do you know him? Do you share fellowship with him? Is your communion with the Spirit, with the Father through Jesus, is it shaping the course of your life? You show me your friends and I'll show you your future, right? Is the friendship of Jesus in your life bearing fruit? Have you drawn near to him in salvation? I don't mean do you know about him. I mean, do you know him? Has there been a moment in time in your life when you would make a decisive break with the things of this world in order to know Christ in his fullness? Have you ever called out to God, God, forgive me of my sin. Wash me in the blood of your son, Jesus. Give me the gift of heaven, the gift of everlasting life. The beauty of the gospel is a broad clarion call that for all who believe, you shall be called the sons of God. Let's go to him in prayer. Thank you so much, Father, for your son, Jesus, for the gift of the gospel, for everlasting life, for your goodness and your consistent provision. Thank you for the gift of prayer that we could come to you in, in this way. Lord, we pray as Jesus instructed us that your name would be hallowed among us and in all the world that your kingdom would come, that you would meet our daily need, that you would give us daily bread that you, God, would forgive our sins and enable us by your Holy Spirit to forgive everyone who sins against us. And God, 
Guard us against temptation. Help us to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Glorify yourself in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.